to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. So we've just finished recording an interview that we are so excited to share. We had a great chat with Helen Go. Oh my goodness, I can't wait for you guys to hear this. I am seriously going to get in my car and go to my neighborhood Asian market and buy pandan leaves, mochi rice, and some like Malaysian sugar. And you guys will find out why. And some coconut. (laughs) Oh my gosh, she's so amazing. I can't wait for everyone to hear this interview. Helen Go is an Ottolenghi product developer. She's co-author of the most beautiful cookbook you will ever come across, Sweet. She's a recipe columnist for Good Food Australia and Good Weekend Mag, which is in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And just an all-around lovely person. We enjoyed this chat, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Helen, welcome to Flower Hour. How are you? Hi, Jeremiah. Great to be here. Great to link up. Welcome, Helen. We're so excited to talk with you today. Hi, Amanda. So first, we just would, we'd love to know how you started baking and how did you come to do what you do today? Yes, I always ask that. It's such a circuitous question because obviously I didn't start out sort of my life, my adult life as a, in, in baking. I did all the sort of migrant Chinese thing and went to university. Um, so I started off doing psychology um, at university and I graduated when I was really quite young. I think it was 20, I was 20. And um, I wanted to go on straight on to do a postgraduate, but they thought, you know, that was really too young to, to go ahead. And so I fell into sort of all sorts of odd jobs, sort of medical, pharmaceutical industry, and which I really didn't enjoy. And I, um, I had a partner at the time who was a, a journalist, and uh, the paper that he w- was working for was being sort of reshuffled. And, you know, he said, you know, he could take a redundancy package and, you know, do something he really wanted to do. And I said, oh, gosh, I would just open a cafe. I mean, I had no experience whatsoever. And he said, well, why don't we do it? (laughs) (laughs) And it was, I mean, probably the most foolish, the best and the most foolish thing that I've ever done. So we converted this old tiny florist into a little cafe. And um, I, I mean, it was a kind of madness. It was sort of a delirium. I don't know what made us think that we could do it. But um, anyway, the doors opened after six months and I just, um, you know, I, 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 it was very homey, the, the, the things that I was making, almost as though I've just invited people over and, um, you know, that I was just cooking lunch for a bunch of people. And, you know, it sort of didn't do anything for about six months. And then one day a reviewer came in and, um, you know, wrote a very flattering, very good, you know, really positive review of it. And I think from then on, we just didn't sleep and I was just sort of baking around the clock. So, I mean, we did lots of other food, but somehow the cakes were the ones that people, you know, sort of, it, it sort of drew people's attention. And uh, when we closed, um, when we sold the cafe, I just got lots of offers to, to you know, do all sorts of, all sorts of cooking um and baking was the one that called out to me i guess the, the most so i did it in a reverse way i kind of started with no experience and just worked my butt off and then <laughs> at the end of that period um was when i decided you know what i really do like this i'm going to you know do it from scratch and get an apprenticeship and really learn um so i went to a, a restaurant and and basically started my training sort of after four years of, of, of working in my cafe. I'm so curious. I'm, I'm a big time cake person. So of course my ears perk up when you say the cakes were standouts. Can you tell us about some of the cakes that you guys made there? You know, I mean, now I think, look back, I mean, they're, they're, they are still cakes that I would eat. I mean, I don't think it's dated in that sense, but perhaps it speaks to the fact that they were quite simple, you know, um, 
we had a like a whole boiled orange cake so it was an orange cake but because it was it contained the whole orange um, and it's not the Claudia Roden one that everybody knows you know the flourless one with the um, ground almonds this was a kind of it was more like a pound cake, but it had a whole orange in it. So I, I'm really big into flavors. So I kind of take a very simple cake, whether it's a lemon tart or a pound cake, and I try to inject as much flavor as I can into it. And I think it was just that sort of surprise when you look at an, an unassuming cake and you don't maybe don't expect so much of it. And then you eat it and you think, oh, gosh, that does taste really good. So that's I worked, I worked it like that rather than it looking spectacular and then somehow um, sort of disappointing. I sort of <laughs> did it the other way. You know, like they looked very simple, but actually they surprised you and how good um, they tasted. So I, that, was, that was how I operated, I guess, at that time. I love that. I love that. It's very honest. Yeah, I think that, that's a nice way, nice way of describing it, honest, yeah. I'd love to know more about your mindset during that period of time before you took on an apprenticeship. Like, how did you, because that's such a big, um, a big, big thing you took on. What was, what was going on in your mind during that time? That's a really good question because um, I recently uh, saw my partner at the time, you know, the one I, sh- I was involved with and also my partner in the cafe. And having not seen, he lives in Australia now, he has his own family. And um, I saw him not having seen him for about 10 years. And I said to him, you know, it's, I've, I've really harbored a guilt that I was so horrible during that time. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, and I don't think I ever really apologized because I was just so difficult to, to be with, to live with. And he said, gosh, I, I'm surprised that you harbored these, you know, feelings. I, I certainly, you know, haven't lost sleep over the fact that you were so horrible. But I, <laughs> it was, I, if, I, if I could say, I think it was just more I was so intense. You know, like if, if something, if a catering job went well, I was intensely, deliriously happy. And if something didn't go well, I felt miserable, you know, almost um, – I mean, I know too much about psychology to say that it was bipolar, but there was a bipolarity to my reactions, very extreme reactions, because I was so identified and so um, caught up in the whole minutiae of the whole the, the business. Um, I was just very, I think I was also very insecure because I didn't expect, first of all, that we were actually going to do it. Um, the cafe I didn't expect that it was going to eventuate and then it did and then the doors opened and then people came in and then they came in again and so I just suddenly was put in this position that I didn't have any experience in and also that I was it shame I kind of thought I've done it I've opened the doors now it's got to work so I felt under tremendous pressure and that brought out the best and the worst in me, I think. You know, the best in the sense that it really pushed me to really give everything I had every day. But the worst also because that entailed a lot of, um, a lot of uh, just uh, emotional stress. Yeah. Hmm. It's so intense to hear about, yeah. and I can imagine living it as well. So this cafe was in Australia. Am I correct in that? Yes, that's yes. right. And then, but now you live in England. And yes. so that's quite a big move. Can you tell us about that, that change in your life? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, cutting across many years, but I, so I stayed in sort of the restaurant business for many years over 10 years and um i met david uh he david is my husband now he was living in london and his parents live in australia so he had this really enviable life that he had never experienced a winter for like 10 years because he would always visit australia when it was sort of winter in england um and during one of those trips uh when he was visiting his parents i met him in melbourne and we had this sort of long distance relationship, um, which really suited very well <laughs> for those three years. And then one day it didn't suit and it was sort of make or break. And, and he said, well, you know, you've got to come to London or else I think that's over. And I just, I guess I saw it as a big adventure. And um, at the time, 
well, I, at that point, I was actually practicing more as a psychologist, sort of full time, and then moonlighting as a chef. Um, and the lady I was moonlighting for had just been to London, and she said uh, that there's a great place that you you would love, and maybe you could get a job there. So I had Otolenghi in mind. That was the store that she was thinking of. And when I came to London, I um, actually where my husband was living at the time, um, Holland Park was very close to Notting Hill, and there was a an Otolenghi store there. And I sort of peeped in the window. I was a little bit intimidated by it. I guess it was so colourful, so sort of um, uh, everything was just kind of there in the wind in the window display. It was just you know it just seemed like a cornucopia, and I liked it. And I wasn't quite sure what I would do, um, but I emailed them that afternoon. So I think it must have been my second or third day in London. <laughs> And within the hour, Yotam called me and said, would you like to come in and have a chat? And, um, yeah, but I think I'm, now I think I've answered more than you asked. For. I think you asked about how I came to London and I've jumped into how I came to be working at Othalangi. I was hoping you'd go there. So it's, it's as if you read my mind. <laughs> yeah. And before we talk about all your current successes, and we, I just want to know, we want to know what a typical day is like for you these days, but I would love to know, um, I think a lot of people in food lead double lives until they don't, um, meaning they have a lot of doubt and they have, you know, they've come from somewhere else. For instance, you know, your background in psychology before food and mine was in music before food. And Amanda, you've had a lot of art before food. Do you have any advice on how to navigate deciding to have a life in food? Yeah, you know, lately um, I have had a number of people call, either contact me through you know, Instagram or um, through an email that gets sent to Otlengi asking for advice. And I always do try to respond to them because it is, you know, it's tricky and it's so consuming, life in food. And I think, you know, you do want to think carefully. Um, and I went to it in a way that I sort of jumped off the deep end and then it was, I just had to swim. And now looking back, I wonder what I could have, or might have done differently. And I think for me, one of the things that really worked was having that duality with psychology and food because for both of my careers, um, it, with psychology, in terms of starting a private practice, having um, a, a, a kind of um, a backup career, not even backup actually, at the time I, I was still very much um, active with my cooking, but having that made me not desperate in terms of setting up um, a private practice, because I think when you're desperate, you do too much, and I think that's not good with your with your for your patients. I think that's good to have a bit of a distance. You see better, you feel better when you have a bit of a gap between you and just wanting to really help or rescue somebody. Um, so I think having another job, both in terms of the financials, but also in terms of something that occupied me, made me less, um, yeah, less desperate with, with my, you know, it, it was, it was like I, I could let my practice evolve and grow organically rather than, you know, heavy marketing and talking about, you know, how to get clients and patients. And so it just gave me that freedom to, to, to let it grow organically. And that was great because I attracted the sort of patients that I really enjoyed seeing um, and who, who, who got something out of coming. You know, I didn't feel like there was any pressure for them to come back. Although obviously, you know, psychotherapy works best if you, you know, have that continuity um, and build on that, you know, all the insights that you gain. And in terms of cooking, it's so physical. It's so physically draining. And I liked sort of knocking off um, from my job in cooking and coming back and reading a journal article on, um, you know, existential psychotherapy. <laughs> so it gave, it, it, it gave a balance to my life that made me feel very fulfilled so that I was very, I although I was, um, I was, I felt very satisfied, although I was tired, you know, 
that makes a lot of sense and very much resonates how my life is these days. And it's, it's very comforting to hear you say these things. Yeah. Oh, and also going back to the question about, you know, what would I advise people? And recently when I've had, um, actually the most recent one was a, um, a law graduate from Harvard <laughs> who's doing a stint um, at UCL in London here. And she contacted me just last week and said, you know, what, what would you do? And I, you know, this sounds, it, 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 I don't mean for it to be glib, but I say don't give up your day job. And what I mean by that is that hang on to, you know, don't, uh, what's the, what's that saying? Don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it does then make you so, anxious and desperate because you know you're 28 or whatever and you have to have a job um and everything you have to do has to be great i mean it just frees you up that you can transition from one thing while you are still while you have the security and the comfort of something else and i think in a way now that i'm talking about it i think when i'm with my patients you know sometimes they People want to make dramatic acts. You know, they want to leave their wives or um, change their, you know, change their careers. Um, they want to move countries. And I always think, hang on to something familiar while you're doing that. You know, have a secure base while you're do- making that plunge. Not because I'm a risk-averse person. I- I'm actually quite a bold person. I like change. I'm somebody who who likes new things. I'm excited by change. But I also know that if you have a secure base, you you make better decisions, I think. Absolutely. Well, tell us what a typical day for you looks like now. Um, gosh, every day is so different. Today, what can I say? Today has been pretty full on. <laughs> Today, <laughs> I had... Um, uh, um, I'm working on a book, uh, um, and another Ottolenghi book. How oh, fun! That's not all baking. <laughs> so I, and as well as that, I have the column, a weekly column that I write for um, an Australian newspaper. And so the briefs are very different, and I have deadlines for both. <laughs> so I try to split my time so that I do a bit of both each day so that I feel I'm kind of keeping up with both of them. And so drawing up lists of, I mean, the, the, the bane of my existence is drawing up um, uh, ingredients lists, you know, shopping lists, and then having to, you know, that, that's just very time consuming. Uh, so I start off my morning doing that. I, actually, usually I try to do that the night before because then I place my order and I know that the morning comes and everything will arrive. And I'm, I pretty much work from home um, unless I do a we do a taste test at the kitchen, the, the test kitchen um, at Othalengi, and that's in Camden, which is about 45 minutes away from here. So I um, so today I was making uh, three vegan salads <laughs> and uh, a slump, which I'm doing for my column, which I'd never heard of, which is a, a, South, a Southern American bake. Um, I, it's my third trial. That's for the column. And that sounds I, fascinating. Do you, have you heard of that? A slump? No. Have you, Amanda? Somewhere in my memory bank. So I, I'm from. Uh, Georgia. So I'm, I'm a Southern oh, American. Fine. Yeah. So I feel like I should know this and somewhere in my mem- memory bank, it sounds familiar, but I, I I would love to hear you describe it. Cause I'm thinking like cobbler ish and that kind of thing, but I might be way off. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think it is a cobbler ish. It's a kind of like a wet, loose cobbler, almost a cross between cobbler and pancake mix. Mm. I would say. And so, you know, you make the mix, which is, yeah, let's say a thick pancake batter, very thick pancake batter, and you sort of put two-thirds of it down. I baked it in a cast iron pan. Um, And then you put your fruit on top. So it could be today I was working on plums because in Australia it's the the column I'm writing for is a winter column. And even though plums are not um, a winter fruit, I wanted to call it a winter plum slump <laughs> and, uh, in, in a way saying, well, there are no plums in winter, but so you use tin plums. And what's 
that past week I've been trying to order tin plums in London, in England, and I cannot get it anywhere. Um, but in Australia, they're readily available. And my recollection is that they're not too bad for baking. You know, maybe you wouldn't eat them out of the tin, but for baking, that they're okay. And because the slump looks so sort of plain and it's in this, you know, you, you spoon it out from a pan, I wanted a bit of colour. So I thought, you know, winter plum sounds sort of intriguing. Um, but I couldn't find them, so I had to poach plums this morning. So I started my day poaching the plums and then I quickly dashed to take my son to school and then came home to perfectly poach plums. So that took about half an hour. Um, so I did the salads, the slump, and I wanted to, was also testing a mashed potato muffin um, to go with soup. Again, thinking that it's a winter column in Australia and that uh, it's a nice little addition to, you know, if you're having soup, it just makes it, having a little, but, you know, savory muffin makes it a little more enticing. <laughs> Oh, that sounds so scrumptious. I'm all about the extras when, when there's a soup served, it's like, what's the dipping bread? What are we going to have? That yeah. sounds so and, you know, good. I'm so happy with it. The mashed potato in it just gave it the d- delicious texture. Um, and I added a bit of potato flour to it um, just to kind of lighten it a bit and some cheese, grated cheese in it and some chives. And um, I had it just, I think I had three of them buttered. <laughs> oh, Delicious. Then a friend texted me to say, oh, um, are we still meeting today? And I thought, oh, shoot, I'd completely forgotten. So I said, well, look, I've got a ton of food here. Why don't you come for lunch? So she came for lunch. <laughs> so that's kind of, yeah, the day was kind of cooking. And then somebody came to help me test test all the food. Um, that, and in between that, my mum had called to ask how the book was going. So we sort of had a pause and I took some pictures of what I'd made and sent it to him. And we kind of talked about how things are going. So wonderful. I I love to hear that most of what you do is in your home kitchen. I think that translates in your recipes as far as, you know, trying to make a recipe. It's helpful when somebody's tested the recipe in a home kitchen. And then also, I think a lot of home bakers, it's easy to put yourself in a box and say, oh, I'm just a home baker. But when you hear and and see the elevated, elevated, magical, delicious, things that come out of your kitchen to know that that's coming from a home is really, really special. Makes it sort of intimate and also inspiring at the same time. It's really nice. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Although it started out being um, a practicality because uh, so the, the, the home, my baking from home started when I was completing my doctorate and I went to your time and I said, Oh, you know, I, I don't think I can work, you know, so many hours anymore and maybe I need to leave. I don't know how this is going to work. And he said, well, we could come to you, you know, which was incredibly generous. And I was so thrilled to, that, you know, he he just made it work. You know, I, I could continue to do what I, what I do and also to do my studies. It just maximized all the time that I had. And so it started off that way. And then over time, I think it was useful, um, given that so much of what we do, whether for the books, um, well, particularly for the books, needs to be translated, it needs to work in a, you know, from the reader's point of view, which is in a home kitchen. And I think after a while, we thought this is quite useful to have to see it, how it works in a domestic setting. Um, and in fact, the test kitchen that I've spoken about, where Actually, all the tests, whether for the book or for uh, food in the for our restaurants, get tested there. It's it's when you, when people come to see. I mean, I, I don't know what they're expecting. Maybe like you know the modernist kitchen or something. But it is so typically ordinary. I mean, we have <laughs> two kind of domestic ovens and um, the, the pans are domestic pans, and the stovetop is a domestic stovetop, and you know, it's just to make sure that it works on that level because it's so easy to say, yeah, you know, my gas jet is wonderful and then no one else can replicate it. I'm now thankful I have a new home, but it has like the bottom of the barrel oven. And I was really sad 
that was the oven I was getting. But now I'm so thankful because in writing recipes, I really can feel confident that if I can achieve it in this oven, anyone else can. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It gives you that base level of, yeah. you know, how something works. Absolutely. Well, can you talk about how being in a relationship with Adelangi, how you guys have influenced each other? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably not such a straightforward thing now because it's morphed over the years. Oh, I bet. I think initially, your Tom really didn't wasn't so clued up with the Asian sort of side of things, and I was also initially a bit sheepish about introducing the the sort of bakes from Australia that are quite simple. I mean, they were the things that I like to eat, um, and I when I joined, and you know, everything looked so colourful, and I was like a bit intimidated. How do you know? I, I thought that my things were too simple, but actually he really liked them. He kind of appreciated the sort of ground up way. Let's infuse the flavor. And then he might suggest a little flourish of, um, of uh, what we could do to a cake to make it stand out in the display. I think I'm a bit impatient. You know, once I, I really work hard at trying to perfect the, 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 um, the foundations of a recipe. And once I get that, I'm so happy that I kind of, you know, I've moved on, you know, and then someone else is left to sort of ice it all carefully and properly, which I, I'm less um, interested in, to be honest. Um, and so he was, he's, he was good at that. So we worked really well together in terms of, um, uh, you know, completing a project. And then we traveled a little bit together and I introduced him to sort of Malaysian street food, which, which he really liked. Um, and now, I mean, gosh, the, the company has grown so much that then there are so many amazing chefs coming from everywhere that the influences are, I mean, I would say, you know, um, you know, my, my uh, contribution is, is probably quite small these days because there's so many of us now and with such exciting ideas. And there's a lot of cross-pollination that goes on. You know, we really like each other we like enjoy the meetings and we really bounce off each other um and certainly amongst uh, sort of sammy and uh your tom and i um you know there are personal phone calls that go on sometimes we eat out and there's an idea and so it's very fluid you know it goes from sort of our ki- our home kitchens to restaurants to otanangi kitchens and we you know we 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 talk in a very fluid way and the influences come from everywhere and anywhere. I love the idea of all these different brains, you know, storming around and formulating ideas. And then it funnels down into shooting out this pastry at the end that everyone gets to enjoy. It's just a fun thought to imagine everybody, you know, passing around ideas and thinking of it in this community kind of way almost. Yes, it is quite communal. The test kitchen is not really big, but, um, at any given point, there are people working on different things. And so if I'm sitting there testing a cake with your Tom, he'll, he might call someone else over who's working on something else and get them to test it. And, and we really take everybody's opinions to heart, you know, so if enough people say, even if I really like it and I really want to do it, if enough people say, you know, I don't know, that feels muddy. Um, so it's always, it's great to have that feedback. Um, and that's, the, I guess, the downside of working in the home kitchen is that you don't get all that um, all that feedback as readily, as quickly. Sure. I know a lot about that solitary life of the home baker. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Australian flavors and Australian bakes. Um, would you tell some of our, our listeners, let me start that again. Would you mind sharing with our listeners some Australian bakes that you wish American bakers would try? Oh, I don't know if I wish American bakers. I think the American bakers have all, you know, a whole bag of stuff that that, that is really exciting. Um, I think it's a sensibility probably. Uh, but even saying that, maybe that's changed, you know, over the years that I've been away. I've been away 13 years now. Um, but I do think actually when I've been back to Australia, we go back once or twice a year, um, I see a lot of evolution in terms of the non-baking, non 
bake, baking food, but somehow with baking, maybe it's a sense of comfort that is associated with baking, but they, they don't evolve quite as quickly. Um, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. It's just it's an observation that the, the, the kind of restaurant savory side of things just seems to constantly um, change so quickly. People grasp onto new ideas and, and the, you know, there are new dishes all the time. But I do often see the same cakes um, at counters. And, you know, carrot cake is still popular. Banana cakes are still popular. Lemon tarts are still popular. You know, they don't seem so out there. Um, and in a way, that is a slight reflection with the work at Ophelengi because I think the savoury dishes move more quickly than the than the than the sweet, you know. And and perhaps that is to do with more comfort, you know, more that baking is associated with with comfort. Have you tried that? I think it's Black Star Pastries watermelon. Cake. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, how was it? Well, you know, I, the idea doesn't appeal to me because it's like sponge and then cream and then what watermelon, you know. But it looks beautiful, um, and it's nice. I, I mean, I, I always say to my husband, "Don't say something is nice because it tells me nothing." <laughs> <laughs> now I'm saying nice. It, it, I wasn't expecting to like it, but I liked it, and I think because there's a rose, slight rose flavor, and the and the um, and the watermelon, it's pretty and it's kind of it's it's slightly delicate, but surprising with all that sort of juice. I yeah, I I don't know that I would travel to go and you know eat it again, but I I I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed looking at it and the idea of it. I mean, I think I've watched them make because they make them by the slab, and I think they must just make them all day long. But I must have just been had my nose pressed against the, the, the glass watching them for, I don't know, half an hour, because it was just so pretty and, and so um, uh, enticing. Something about it was enticing. I guess the colour, because, you know, the idea of watermelon in a sponge cake itself didn't appeal. <laughs> Last summer, I've never had it, but I was determined to recreate it because my family's. A oh big yeah, mom. how did you go? <laughs> it was. It, I have to tell you, I, I people raved about it. It did really well. Really? Wow. Um, yeah, I was really surprised because rose is you know not very popular. Right. Um, but I have a giant rose geranium plant, and oh, so I, I love rose geranium. It's the best. Oh, so I made rose geranium ice cream. Oh gosh! Oh, I should do that because that's what I did. I infused all the the cream with rose geranium yes. instead of using rose water, and it was a dream. It was Gorgeous, awesome. and also with chocolate sauce, like Ooh. rose geranium ice cream with chocolate sauce. Oh gosh, so divine. oh gosh, <laughs> now my brain's my brain is spinning in a new direction. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also rose goes so well with the watermelon. I think something yes. about also you expecting it because it's pink. Something about it, you yeah. Know, you expect it to work because um, the colors somehow um, is is reminiscent of rose. Yeah. And then all those pistachios and the grapes and the strawberries. I would never have thought to put grapes. That's always people look at it like, that's beautiful. But why did you put grapes on that cake? But I mean, wait till you try it. It somehow all just works. Yeah. <laughs> Do you cook the grapes first? or No, I just kept them raw. And I think yeah. I did a just a simple sort of glaze on top, you know, apricot kind of glaze. Right. Yum. Yeah. And then the little rose geranium flowers instead of rose petals. It was fun. I definitely will do it again this year. It was such a summery thing to have here in the the heat of of northern california yeah yes well tell us a bit about baking traditions in malaysia oh my gosh yeah that's a whole different kettle of fish you know it's so texturally it's so different malaysian cakes and the uh, method is also very different they're usually steamed um oh wow yeah and mm, what have i made recently so there's one thing that um that I make quite a lot. Um, it's called onde onde, and they are like green balls rolled in coconut. I don't know if you've seen anything. No. Oh, tell us more. Yeah. So it's. I guess the the, the texture is like mochi. Um, okay. Uh, but the but the base is you. There are two kinds. You can either make it with a base of sweet potato, or sweet potato and glutinous rice flour. 
glutinous rice flour is um, it's gluten with an I, not an E. Um, so it's it's made of rice, and when you mix it with hot water, it kind of creates a bouncy, springy texture like mochi. And I, my version, I mix um, sweet potato, which I think the white sweet potato is is better because it's it's less um, it's got less liquid, so that you don't end up having to add so much flour to get the a, a kind of dough. You, you form a dough with it. Um, then you form them into little balls and you poach them. Oh, actually, before you poach them, you you um, you create a little indent and you fill it with a tiny chopped up palm sugar and that's malaysian palm sugar which is hard like the thai palm sugar except it's black and it tastes like molasses oh delicious wow yeah and it it comes they're made in logs because traditionally the the um syrup or the cane sugar is poured into bamboo um like you know um hollow bamboo stems and then it's i don't know the process exactly but that it used to be made this way. I'm sure that in the modern factory it's not made like that, but they've retained the logs um, so they look like sort of dark brown logs. So you, then you chop up as much as, as you need. And for these onde onde, you chop them so they look like tiny pebbles and then you fill the little dough ball. So if you can imagine a gnocchi and then you put an indent with your thumb and you fill that indent or that hole with the little palm sugar pebbles. Then you close it up and you poach it in water like gnocchi. And when they, oh, I'm missing one crucial step. <laughs> it has pandan extract in it, which is that grass. Do you know about pandan? It's going to have sort of, um, I've definitely had it in like Thai sticky rice. It's greenish, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does it have like a coconutish flavor? Coconut, or no? vanilla, more coconut. vanilla. Although it's often paired with coconut, so I can see why you you might say that. Um, so uh, there are essences that you can get uh, that are that range from sort of very very bad to lurid green to really pure. And I have um, a juicer like a masticating juicer. So I buy the blades of pandan leaves from the Thai grocer or the Asian grocer. I store it in the freezer. And when I need, when I'm making this or when I need, want to make a pandan cake, I juice the blades. Um, I mean, it sounds really hardcore, <laughs> but when, <laughs> when you have it there, it's, it's actually not so, not so bad. It's like juicing, you know, um, spinach or something. Um, and <laughs> I might extract maybe two tablespoons of the pandan leaves extract and I put it into the dough. So the dough is green. The onde onde ball is green. And when you poach it, um, it retains its color. So it comes up to the top when it's ready, like gnocchi, and you skim it off. And when you skim it off, you then roll it in a tray, preferably freshly grated coconut. I mean, it's hard to explain. <laughs> it's hard to imagine what that tastes like, but it's it's kind of like a little sweet vanilla gnocchi, which sounds disgusting, but but actually, it's delicious. Oh, it um, sounds wonderful! It feels like I a fun goosebumps. project, like a fun project with kids yeah. too. I'm going. My kids would love to do this. Yeah, because they can roll the balls, and it's it's a very it's got like a pliable ball. When we were kids in Malaysia, the fun thing was. Um, biting into it and because as you're poaching the little balls the the sugar some parts of the sugar melts you know like if you've got pebbles like the very small pebbly bits melt and then you've got some sort of bits that remain um kind of pebbly and when you bite into it sometimes the sugar squirts out and (laughs) when we were children eating this the the kind of slight danger in eating it was we would try to kind of squirt each other (laughs) (laughs) When you mentioned a bit ago saying the word nice and how that's not, you know, the kind of feedback that you're looking for because it doesn't tell you enough. It made me, it, it brought a question to mind. So in research for our chat, I read about how your mother would encourage you guys to give her feedback when she would serve a meal. I just, I love that so much. And I wonder, do you continue that tradition with your family or when you're testing recipes, does that come to mind very often? Yes, it does. And I mean, it's kind of, 
uh, you know, whether you like it or not, you're going to get that feedback. That's my (laughs) way my family work. And it's, you know, so we've kind of grown up with it. We're always talking about food. David, my husband, finds it a little bit oppressive. You know, like, does it always have to revolve around food? And is there really so much to talk about with that noodle dish, you know? Um, (laughs) So we all enjoy it. And I, I, I think it was... It's it's news to me, not news to me, but it's kind of a little bit surprising still when I see that actually not everybody enjoys this. Uh, I, I, and actually, the girl who came for lunch today, you know, I I didn't want to be sort of. I mean, I wanted to be relaxed with her, but I also wanted to get the feedback. So every now and then, I would say, "Oh, did you enjoy that?" <laughs> and I that she was very. She, she actually genuinely didn't seem to have very much to say, and I don't think it was because she didn't like it, but because I think she just isn't in the habit of critiquing food. I think, and and then we ended up talking about it. For her, it's a practicality. Um, you know that saying: you either eat to live or live to eat. You know, I think there are probably some people who um, eat to live. My husband is one of them. <laughs> you know, and and the girl today who came, my friend Michelle today who came is also one of them because I, I'm so used to being with people who are obsessed about food. That's my normal, you know, milieu that occasionally when you come across somebody who's not, you know, who's happy to eat and even enjoys it, but doesn't think to actually discuss it. Um, so I, you do come across people like that and I'm always, yeah, just very surprised because, you know, I'm constantly talking about food. <laughs> My grandmother is someone I bake for often because sometimes I'm doing family recipes and she's very critical and I always interpret that as her way of loving me. But the thing is, is I'll ask like for details. Okay, so it wasn't right. Well, what should I do differently? Does it need more of this? And she's like, I can't tell you. I just can't tell you. I I don't work that way. I just know it's not right. And it's a funny conversation. You're like, more cinnamon? What? What is it? What is it? Tell me, grandma. No, no. So, but when you do get it, then it's magical when yes. you see the her. And also when, like, you, when, when you get a piece of feedback that sort of furthers you along. Um, and even though I say my husband David isn't, um, you know, so interested in discussing food, he's a very analytical person. So I can get him on that level. And he's often very helpful, even though he's not that interested in eating it. But he will say just the right adjective. Um, he's really good with words. And sometimes it's just the adjective I need to, that helps me the next step, you know, what I want to do in the next step with, with the particular recipe. So it is helpful. Well, so much of what you do revolves around being creative and and finding inspirations. And we'd love to know what inspires you and how do you sustain such a high level of creativity while producing so many recipes? Yeah. You know, it's, mm, I think remaining open, um, you know, one the that person who called me about a change in career last week, you know, she said, um, you know, what do you, well, how do you plan? How do you plan things? You know, what, what is your five-year plan? What is your two-year plan? And I said, you know, I don't have plans because um, I need to be open to kind of every, everything. And that's where, and when you are open to, to things, inspiration comes, whether I'm trying to think of, you know, give you an example which isn't coming to mind at the moment um so it can come from anywhere um gosh why don't i why don't why aren't i able to come up with something right now but um there are days when i think okay i think that's the last of it i'm not going to be able to think of something for another week um i think just continue continue on to work and to read and to uh, play, something always comes of it. I, when studying music at a conservatory, you know, we're all so young and so driven, to, you know, to to win a job and to be successful. And my my teacher at the time, I'd be like, "What do I do? What do I do? What, what do I need to do? How do I structure this day? How do I structure this weekend? This year?" He's he's like, "Go out to dinner, <laughs> yeah. have a glass of wine, yeah, like, go live your life. That's what's yeah. going to." Yeah. So what you're saying reminds me that like live your life. Yeah, for creativity yes, and- absolutely. I mean, this is a really old example, but there's one of the recipes in sweet um, uh, um, uh, little tiny meringues that are like woodland meringues. You know, that was inspired by 
a walk in Kew Gardens, you know, sort of when it was autumn and all the conkers were on the ground, little nuts, and uh, my son's wanting to eat them, you know, and me thinking, you know, it's like a walk in the woods and, and um, woodland meringues. So that sort of inspired. So it can be that kind of thing, you know, not necessarily eating meringue in someone else's house, you know, or sorry, restaurant, or um, it doesn't have to be so direct. I know for me, I get a lot of um, inspiration from art, but then even from food itself, just from cravings, I think it's kind of nice that we, we have to keep on eating. So there's times when I think, I'm just burned out. There's, I don't have any more cakes in me, but then I get hungry again. It's like, okay, here we go. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's like a a art medium that just keeps pulling you back. Even if you think, oh, I don't have any more. It's like, but I'm hungry. So what, what make? I don't know. That, that's, that's a very reliable drive, isn't it? That yeah. It keeps coming. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say in terms of, um, of uh, inspiration, you know, I think if it doesn't come, I think when you try to sort of make it, try to force it, I think you, the frustration, you get to a level of frustration. And what Jeremiah was saying was, yeah, take a break, do something else. Uh, I think that is really, really useful. Very useful. Uh, for anyone listening that's never had the pleasure of making a Helen Go recipe, are there a couple that you would say, oh, please start here. You you must try this. You know, I want to say that rolled pavlova because not everyone thinks I can't. it's not going to work and it always works. <laughs> and even if it doesn't, you can kind of pat it to, pat it to shape. And what I like about it is that you can put anything in it, you know, anything according to the seasons. I'm very much driven by fruit and the, 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 the seasonal fruit. In fact, for my column, my weekly column, the first thing I do, whenever I sit down to do it is I look at the that week and that particular season and what's in season. I sometimes even call a grocer in Australia and get a, get an idea, you know, this time last year, what were you, what was the most popular thing, you know, because fruit, it's just kind of immediate. You're halfway there. It's got color. It's sweet. Um, you know, you're, you're halfway there. So I, that's my first sort of point and because this pavlova um it's it's rolled with the fruit inside i think it's a kind of all season um all season bake and the the kind of confidence that you somebody gets from making it and rolling it and then seeing the finished product which is which can look really quite spectacular I think that is hugely um, confidence boosting. And sometimes that's just all you need to feel that you can actually tackle it. You can do it. I'm so happy that you mentioned this recipe because preparing for our talk today, I, I watched a video um, where you were discussing some recipes and this came up and I was a little mad at myself for not having made it yet. And I'm going, okay, this is the push I need. And now hearing you say it, I'm going, okay, this is coming soon. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I was I hesitated just a little bit with that because um, I'm not sure if you heard of it. You know, when when Sweet was released, there were some errors in the translation in terms of the temperature, oven temperatures, um, translating from Celsius to Fahrenheit, and also um, in terms of the imperial and metric measurements, there were some errors there. And unfortunately, meringues are very sensitive to that, both temperature and also um, you know grammage of you know, sugar and, and, and egg whites. In fact, all, all of baking is slightly sensitive to that. But meringues in particular, you know, burn very easily. And, you know, that was a very, very low point for me when I when we discovered that there were errors. But that, they've all been fixed um, in terms of uh, the, the proofs were um, recalled and we um, corrected them and sent out new ones. We even replaced uh, all copies that people had bought so it was just something we had to do but it was a really low point for me thinking all oh, this work and then disappoint you know people disappointed with their bakes just because it was you know 15 20 degrees more than it should have been um so I hesitate a bit but I sort of boldly recommended that all the same because I think it's so beautiful um 
and also you know egg whites are free so you know every time i make something with egg yolks whether it's ice cream or a sponge i just collect the egg whites and i freeze them and each time i collect them in jam jars and freeze them in jam jars and when i need uh, when i want to make a pavlova i just weigh out like 30 grams per egg white and let's say i need six egg whites that's 180 grams of egg whites and i'm i have you know i'm just halfway there to the recipe i love that i am also someone who has gallons of egg whites in their freezer right yeah (laughs) and somehow and even you know when i've served that pavlova people have said oh i I couldn't possibly eat that and then they end up eating three slices genuinely what people do with that cake because it's kind of light and then all that fresh fruit as well so i like that one um i also like the chocolate tart which is i guess a little more tricky in terms of needing pastry i mean i look i'm fascinated like americans bake tarts a lot and um you know i certainly have seen with my column that any time i you know, a, a pastry needs to be made. I do lose half the readers with it. I think people are kind of a bit phobic about pies, but I see Americans. You know, they love their pies, and um, and I see them very confidently tackling pastry. So um, I don't know whether that's a cultural thing. Yeah, it's so interesting the the idea of pastry in this country and who does it, who doesn't, who buys it, and what fats do they use and. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Polarizing, I would say. Yeah. Polarizing, Polarizing is a better word. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to favor very simple, simple cakes. And I think that's sort of becoming more clear to me because there are times when I, you know, what I want to eat and what I end up sort of putting out in the, in the shops or, or putting in my column uh, are slightly different. You know, I like very plain things. I mean, when when Sweet came out, one of the um, one of the reviews that pleased me the most was um, somebody describing my the, our cakes as dressed down with perfect bedhead with an edge. <laughs> and oh, I think they wonderful. it was called Gainsbourg, you know. And I was like, oh my god, that's that's exactly what I want, you know, which is to suggest. <laughs> It's dressed down. There's nothing. There's. It's not hugely decorative, and that perfect bedhead is is sort of slightly something a bit undone about it. And then the edge is that extra kind of surprise that that there's a flavour in it that you might not expect, um, or that you might not expect it to be quite so intense because it look it looks so simple. Um, so that really pleased me. I kind of felt like, oh, you got me. You know, you 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 understood it. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. You've. I mean, you've inspired a whole whole wave a whole generation i don't even know what the right words are but even you guys have inspired so much in the baking world oh that's so nice to hear thank you yes well we thought it'd be fun to finish with a sort of lightning round of some just kind of like some questions just to to hear your perspective about them yeah amanda do you want to start the first one uh sure okay baking fail oh gosh i mean so many (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think earlier on my chiffon cakes, I'm now really, really proud of them and I love them. But, um, and it was just such a simple thing in the end. I just didn't, I had a nonstick pan and you cannot have a nonstick pan to make a chiffon cake, right? That's the best tip, of course. And yeah, beginners need to know that. Yeah. And sometimes the smallest thing can just derail something otherwise that could have been perfect. Exactly. And you know, the thing is for a long time, I think manufacturers thought, oh, we're going to make them. Uh, make them foolproof. Right. We're going to make them non-stick because that way they'll always come out. And it wasn't wasn't until I watched a documentary. I mean, this is now probably ten years. Okay, so um, uh, ten years ago when I watched a documentary on panettone, a factory in in Italy making panettone, and when the cakes come out, they hang them upside down immediately, um, and. Obviously, you can't grease the tin because it would fall out. And that penny dropped for me. I'm sure it dropped for everybody 20 years ago. But for me, it was then at that point that I thought, okay, and then my chiffon cakes have been, I think, perfect ever since. (laughs) (laughs) How about your proudest baking moment? Proudest baking moment would probably be my um, pineapple tarts, my pineapple and star anise tarts. They are 
um, it's a Chinese New Year tradition in Singapore and Malaysia for these pineapple tarts. And there's a kind of romantic, romantic, romanticism around it because, um, you know, people are very competitive. It's like mince pies over here at Christmas time. People are, um, there's always polls, you know, who has the best mince pies and the pineapple and star anise or um, pineapple and cinnamon pastries at Chinese New Year, you know, you will travel to buy the, you know, the, the, the best ones. And I think I'm slightly, um, I've always been reticent going to the Malaysian baking sweets because of that, again, that romantic notion. I, I have a, a kind of rose-tinted memory of how they ought to taste and then somehow they fall short. But when I began to work on these pineapple um, tarts for the book, I really think I've captured, you know, the kind of tarts that my mother would make. It has the same quality, eating quality, as I remember. So I'm very, really proud of that. Oh, so fantastic. Uh, favorite birthday dessert? Oh, okay. So favorite birthday dessert is this cake called chocolate ripple cake. That is, I guess, what you would call an icebox cake. It is made by sandwiching chocolate biscuits with cream until they soften. Um, the whole it, And you make it in a log because you're stacking um, round chocolate biscuits together. It's a commercial biscuit called chocolate ripple. Uh, and when you sandwich it with cream and then slather the whole thing in cream, you then refrigerate it for six hours and the whole thing melds into one. And when you cut it on the diagonal, people are like, how did you make that? Because you've got these stripes that go, um, you know, sort of, sort of diagonally. It's just the way you cut it that gives you that stripe. And I love that for birthdays because it's really easy, but you can also customize it. So you can put you know, Bailey's Irish cream and make like a sort of alcoholic version. Um, but for my children, they like strawberry and vanilla. So I kind of sandwich with strawberry and vanilla. Do you dip the cookies in, in anything or just, just combine them with cream? Those cookies are sold in Malaysia. <laughs> in fact, you know, when I was in East, uh, in Australia and Easter, uh, on the last day when my sisters came to see me, they had this big box, like it was really big. And it was filled with chocolate ripple biscuits because they realized how much my children enjoy eating them. And I've actually since made them successfully. But some things are like, you know, some things are probably best left to um, yes. commercial variety. Um, it's not, it's, oh gosh, how would I describe it? It's a really crisp cookie and it's craggy. And I think the cragginess helps the cream to sink in, sink into it. And then it sort of all melts into one. That's lovely. So food trends, give us one that you love and one that you hate. Oh gosh, I'm going to be really unpopular saying this, but <laughs> I know it's good for you, but this fermentation craze, it's like everybody is talking about it and doing it and, and just, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, I know it's good and I know you're doing it and I know it's great that you're having success with it, but I just don't want to hear about it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. I love it. And then what is one that you love? I do like pared down things. I don't know whether it's just a phase I'm going through, but, you know, I, yeah. I like a really pared down. I mean, last yesterday I, um, I had uh, lunch at St. John's. Do you know about St. John's? Uh, oh, yeah, I've been there. I loved it. Yeah. And, you know, that, that has been my favorite restaurant for a long time. But since it's, it's in the other side of town to where I live, um, so I don't haven't been there so much since having kids. Just I'm just so busy. Um, and timing wise, it's just sort of hard to justify. But anyway, I went there yesterday, and it was just so good. And I, you know, it's uncluttered, um, simple food, and just done so exquisitely. So I don't think that's a trend, but I'm pleased to see that is still. You know, there are, that it's still holds that you can put out something very simple um, and be completely satisfied by it without all the fancy stuff. Excellent. You've defined your own trend. I like it. Uh, if you're ordering a dessert at a restaurant, chocolate or fruit? Oh, fruit always. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I very rarely order chocolate desserts. 
I'm the same, actually. Really? That's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm always, always a fruit. Always. And, <laughs> that and sounds was funny. It, but... Was that your post, Jeremiah, that I saw with Dandelion? Were you there? Or was that somebody else? I think that was someone else, but that sounds up my alley. The Dandelion chocolate. I mean, you know, if I want something, to, I would rather eat a bar of chocolate. <laughs> so I very rarely have chocolate desserts. Yeah, that's that's my house, too. We're always, unless I'm making Amanda's chocolate cake recipe, then, <laughs> oh, then it's full oh, on. Can you tell me about that? Oh, Amanda, go for it. It's it's a pretty standard chocolate cake where you mix all the dry together and then you add in the wet and then hit it with some boiling coffee or boiling water, or you could sub out different liquids, but it's just been honed and tweaked and, and manipulated for a long time until it was just where I wanted it. So uh, it's, it's moist, that word everyone loves to hate, but it's the best word to describe it. It's, it's moist and it's intense. <laughs> I don't understand what that antipathy towards that word is. It describes something perfectly. It's an effective I word. Agree. I don't think it deserves yeah. all the hate. So yeah, it's, uh, it's just a and delicious it's, cake. Is it published anywhere? I'm going to make it. <laughs> it's on my site. Yeah, it's on my uh, website. So you can click click around and, and find it pretty easily. But I make it in six inch size and eight inch size, which I like baking the six inch cakes. The height, they just feel a little yes. tall and lanky and just attractive to look at and not too much for my family. So, And do you do ice it or frost it? Or? I I change, I've put every frosting in the book on this cake, sometimes just chocolate ganache. That's what my husband likes the most, or I make a lot of different caramels. So that pairs really nicely, like a maple caramel or a sorghum caramel. Those are the ones that we do most of all, make a buttercream out of the caramel. So which bake have you made the most during your, your life? Uh, my, uh, chocolate cake i hesitate because the the title is world's best chocolate cake i don't know if i can claim that having not had amanda's <laughs> um that one because uh that was a standard at the cafe that i had and also that was the one that people always ordered and i wholesaled that to um cafes around um so and it's also really really easy so i can make that although actually it takes a quite a long time in the oven it's really easy to put together it also has hot coffee in it, Amanda, so maybe it's quite similar. It sounds like they could be friends. Is that recipe available somewhere? Yeah, it's in sweet. It's called World's Best Chocolate. Oh, no, no, it's called, uh, what is it called? Best Chocolate Cake. Best Chocolate Cake, okay. Well, this was it was reviewed as the World's Best Chocolate Cake, so it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of, yeah, we call it World's Best Chocolate Cake, but the introduction says, you know, that's obviously now guaranteed to disappoint because, you know, <laughs> how could it possibly be? Um, that one, and I would say the pavlova because I love making it and I love putting uh, different fruits in it each time. And each time you have a different fruit, it feels like a completely different bake. Well, we've finished our lightning round. Jeremiah, do you want to do the last question? Yeah. I'm sad. It's such a great time. I'm I don't so want sad. to end. <laughs> When you were talking about the fads, one of the things, one thing that comes to mind now is specific to baking, which is the, um, you know, when people substitute sugars, which I, I get, I understand it, but somehow yeah. we think just because it's a substitute, it's so much better for you. And I'm just not 100% sure it's always so much better for you. Yeah, I I. I think Amanda and I are on the exact same page as you. I mean, go for the, if for, for flavor reasons, fine. But if exactly. you're, exactly, you know, yes. Yeah. Put your agave in because you want to do that or, yes. um, you know, uh, your, brown, your brown sugar, I'm, I'm mad keen on, you know, I love, I think it's yeah. such an easy way to infuse flavor, you know, you've got all that caramel burnt tones. So I, I love that. But, you know, when you talk about sort of other, yeah, sort of new fandangle kind of sugar, right. I, I'm just not sure that they're, <laughs> well, I'm so excited to hear what, what your answer will be for this question. This is the question we ask all of our guests at the end of an episode, and it's, mm -hmm. if you could bake anything for anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you bake? Gosh. Um, well, for a long time, my favorite book was Ruth Reichel's Comfort Me With Apples. And um, so, you know, I really love her writing and would you know, wanted to meet her. And then I met her and she was fabulous, but she did say, oh, your cakes are also complicated. So I thought, oh, I'm definitely not baking for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, who would it be? 
gosh. Um, you know, I would probably go back to, <laughs> this is going to be, you know, when I was training as a psychologist, part of my training was that you have to have your analysis, you know, your, your own analysis. And that's weekly. It's pretty intense. And that goes on for years, like five years. And my analyst was somebody who was fairly traditional. So he didn't talk about himself. He was quite, um, you know, Freudian in that sense, very old school psychoanalytic. And, you know, I was always curious, you know, what do you eat? What do you like? You know, because I knew so little about him. <laughs> so probably him, my analyst, my previous analyst. And um, what would I bake, cook for him? Probably not a cake. I, I don't pick him as a cake person. Um, I would probably do like a cheesecake with like goat's cheese or something because I, I feel like I want to bake him a cake, but I feel like he wouldn't enjoy eating a sweet cake. So I might sort of do, uh, yeah, a cheesecake sort of made with goat's cheese that has a, something surprising with like strawberries or raspberries. Oh, it sounds delicious. Wow. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. I mean, literally, I wish we could talk all day with you. Yeah, it was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it.